Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Uh, we are very thrilled to welcome back uh, best-selling novelist Arthur Phillips. Um, Arthur was born in Minneapolis and educated in Harvard and has done a million interesting things, uh, such as child actor, jazz musician, speechwriter, five-time Jeopardy champion. I love it. Um, his first novel, Prague, was named Notable Book of the Year by the New York Times and received the Los Angeles Times Art Seidenbaum Award for Best First Novel. Um, but tonight, uh, we have him back for his new release, which is called The Tragedy of Arthur. And uh, it sounds just amazing. I can't wait to read it. This virtuistic, virtuistic novel masquerading as a memoir uh, includes an entire five-act lost William Shakespeare play. And my friend read it and said, it's an amazing Shakespeare play. So please help me welcome Arthur Phillips. Hi, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, let's see. Can you hear me in the back? No, it's not weird. It's you know I don't want to I don't want to cast aspersions on it. No, it's fine. Is that better? Uh, yeah. Does everyone like that better? It's much better. Okay, good. Whew, that was close. Um, uh, well, let me see where to start. This is a little awkward. Um, I'm talking about this book today. Uh, I have to give you some background on it. Uh, start with the, the, the uh, July of July of 2009. Uh, there a, a play was found. It was in a safe deposit box in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, this is. It was at Twin City Federal, for those of you who are keeping track of these things. A sponsor of the Minnesota Twins games, for those of you who listen on the radio. Uh, and in this safe deposit box, there's a, just a single, you know, not much larger than a, a, a slim paperback pamphlet. Um, and it was called, the play is called, the most, the, most, the most Excellent and Tragical History of Arthur, King of Britain. Um, it's dated 1597 as a publication date, which doesn't necessarily make it an item of huge value. There, that could be worth a few hundred dollars or less. Um, it says, newly corrected and augmented by W. Shakespeare. Now, this would obviously make it an item of huge value and important uh, if it were true. Um, it's what's called a quarto edition. A quarto edition is a single play in one volume. And there are probably 500 or fewer individual quartos of Shakespeare plays that still survive today. Uh, not all of his plays not all of his plays still exist as quartos. We know that some of his plays exist only because of the collected edition uh, of his plays that came out a few years after he died. But 
about half of his plays exist in quarto. If this play were, uh, and there are certain things I'm allowed to say legally and things I'm not allowed to say, if this play were uh, uh, certainly authenticated as what it claims to be on its cover, it would be worth obviously any, any astronomical amount of money. Um, I'm not able to say, I'm not, uh, I'm able to, I'm allowed to say that opinions vary on the matter. And my opinion is not the only one that matters. <clears throat> I'll leave it at that. The complicated question of um, the publication of the play, it's become known as the tragedy of Arthur in the years since it was found in that box two, two and a half years ago, uh, has been very painful for me personally, obviously, and has led to um, essentially a public humiliation, which is what brings me in front of you tonight. Um, the introduction to the play was written by me. Uh, I'm not a Shakespearean scholar by any means, but I was able to negotiate uh, the right to write whatever I saw fit as the introduction to this publication. The, book, the play was published for the first time in April of this year. Um, so I'll just start a little bit by reading to you a little bit from the introduction. Uh, and when introducing what purports to be, could be, uh, the first, really the first newly discovered Shakespeare play in almost 400 years, I thought it best to start um, uh, with my childhood. So, let's see if I can find them. I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, and my father uh, spent a great deal of my childhood in prison, which was uh, something I thought should be addressed for reasons I'll get to before we talk about the Shakespeare play, the purported Shakespeare play. This is something that happened to me and my twin sister when we were about nine years old. I think you'll see soon how it relates to uh, Shakespeare. He had just gotten out of prison When we were 10, we started spending weekends with him in his studio apartment on Lake Street, above the bookbinder where his friend had found him a job. He'd been out of jail now for more than a year, had stuck to his probation requirements, and seemed to have become a reasonably normal divorced guy. We slept on air mattresses, and at bedtime, he would read to us. Alexander Dumas or Arthur Conan Doyle, if things went my way. Shakespeare, if they didn't. One June Friday evening, the soporific play to Dana's pleasure was decided based solely on the date. Dana's my twin sister, excuse me. It was going to be a Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, it did the trick for me quite quickly, since I'm with the diarist Samuel Pepys on this one, who wrote of the play, the most insipid, ridiculous play that ever I saw in my life. But I must have fought off sleep until Act 2, Scene 1. This was due to my father's vocal prowess solely, because I remember the conversation that followed from his reading of the line, and I serve the fairy queen to do her orbs upon the green. And Dana asked what that meant, and my father described fairy rings, little dark circles that appear in grass, which in Shakespeare's nature-rich youth in green Warwickshire would have been a source of mystery and wonder, he said, mingled with fear. I may have mentioned that it sounded like a dull childhood if some rotting grass was a highlight. Now, some future moments flow from this. One, my sister's dreadful college punk band at Brown, for which she played the bass, which was the fairy rings. 
and to my eventual career as a novelist, possibly since we were lying down drowsy in the drabest conceivable space, and my father, who did have a way with his vocal effects and his vocabulary, was extolling the greatness of anyone who adds to the world's store of possibility. Wizards, he would say. If he had been trying to hypnotize me for life ahead, I wouldn't have ended up much differently. And the third thing that followed were a few very odd weeks the pinnacle of my love for the three of us, my sister, my father, and I as a team, culminating in his arrest and plea bargain, his fines, and community service. He said something along these lines, and throughout the book I'm forced to recreate as best I can memories that are sometimes 35 years old conversations, but it went something like this. He said, in those days, you walked outside your house, or 20 minutes outside of London, and you were in an endless forest, as magical and terrifying as anything you could imagine. Wonders were in the grass, mysteries, something invisible was trying to communicate with you, frighten you, charm you, maybe steal from you or help you, lead you to riches. Now we're very boring and we know that there aren't grotesque fairies out there. We cut down those forests to prove it and we know what causes 20 varieties of discoloration of the turf. We have so many facts and with them we can cut down anything. I was 10, I agreed wholeheartedly. My dad, Forrest's adventure, wonder, my sister and I versus prisons and bulldozers and boring people and facts. That seemed to explain the world. Two weeks later, he asked for us again. After dinner, we returned to his apartment, but instead of changing into pajamas and lying down for some blank verse torture, we were instructed to trade our dress-up clothes for jeans and sweatshirts and my... Uh, he filed us back outside to his elderly station wagon. We drove west and then south through the late gathering July evening, the mosquitoes pursuing us. He drove on through our curiosity and then our boredom and he answered no direct questions. He only said, fairies have to travel farther to reach us nowadays. All of our skill at disproving things is like a wall we have to jump over and to jump over it we need a long running start. I didn't wake until our tires crossed from asphalt to dirt. It was totally dark. Our headlights were off. There was no moon. From now on, my father whispered, only whisper. He parked on dirt. I got to hold the flashlight. Down, he hissed. Point it down. And from under a tarp in the back of the station wagon, he pulled out a machine I had never seen before and have never seen since. It seemed like a snowblower with wheels, but also with a chimney chute on the back. It also had huge flywheels and loose cables. He had red gas cans and plastic barrels, shovels, two hand carts, and a long wooden board with ropes attached at both ends. He took the flashlight in his mouth, and he led our little parade with the machine. He wheeled it across a road, up and down a ditch, up to a fence. He cut the fence wire at one post, rolled it back to the next, Dana and I were highly excited at this point, although we were only performing manual labor by flashlight. He seemed to know where he was going, around a grove of trees, along a path next to a field of corn stalks as high as my ten-year-old waist. From here, he said, step only where I step. Put your feet in my footprints. We have to start in the middle. This was now positively exalting. My father, at his best, when we were at the age most receptive to his power, and we did it. It was work, but it felt like something else, something higher. We laid the, the guide strings, dragged that board on rope, did the cutting, spread the material, brushed over the wheel tracks and the footprints, restapled the cut wire fence, swept our tire tracks all the way down the road. All of this probably took six or seven hours in the middle of the night. The three of us stank of the material. 
And on the ride home, Dana and I slept despite our questions and our bewilderment. I don't remember going upstairs to his apartment. I don't remember how I woke clean in my pajamas with my clean clothes folded next to the air mattress. I don't know when the donuts and the chocolate milk had arrived. Dana and I both suspected a dream until we saw the other's face. This didn't necessarily settle it since we still had identical dreams now and then. It was past noon when we woke. It seems to me that yet we sleep, we dream, my father said, and Dana climbed onto his lap to hug him. What did we do? She asked. The hard part, he said, is still coming. The hard part of magic is letting it happen and not telling anyone. Anyone. You mean mom, I said, suspicion prickling in me at last. I do mean her, but I'm not so worried about that. I mean anyone, your friends, anyone. Because we can get in trouble, I asked. Yes, I suppose so, the convicted criminal gently granted me. But I'm not worried about that either. That's not why the secret is important. No, here it is. His voice became very serious and he had our attention. You can't tell anyone because that sucks the life out of what we just did. All the fun, all the magic bleeds out and it's just an empty, stupid thing. But if we don't tell, then we spent last night brilliantly. You decide. You make our night what you want, brilliant and ours or stupid and theirs. My father made no money from this exploit. He spent a fair amount of money. In fact, he invested it, he would say. The equipment, the time spent in researching the site, easy road access, unelectrified fence, good visibility from the air, long distance from the farmer's house, no dogs. The time he spent building the machine, adapting a snowblower to cut symmetrical tiered paths through early July corn. The slime he concocted to slather over those paths, and of course the fines he had to pay to that farmer near Worthington, Minnesota, and the community service he had to perform. And what was the payoff? Why bother? To astonish. To add to the world's store of precious possibility. To set the record crooked once and for all, so that someone's life, some stranger, was not without wonder. And to this day, the record remains a little crooked, thanks to us. If you Google crop circles, you will find aerial photos of our work. Although our circle in 1974 was very basic, not like the overwrought ones they make nowadays. You can find our creation breathlessly described, and you can read the testimony of some of the first witnesses, neatly detached from any mention of human involvement or arrests. You'll find descriptions of the alien sludge, now a common occurrence at crop circles, although its actual recipe was my father's invention. He kept the clippings from the Minneapolis Star, the evening paper, in those long-ago two paper days. But it was Tuesday before our work actually appeared on the TV news. By then, we were back at our mother's for the week. Anyone from Minneapolis? You'll know this. So Dad didn't have the pleasure of watching the WCCO coverage with us, listening to local anchorman Dave Moore. Thank you. If you have any questions about authenticity, I think we've just settled that. Listening to local anchor Dave, Moore, anchor Dave Moore and seeing our faces as we slowly figured out what we had done. Instead, we were sitting next to Mom when the farmer told the reporter with absolute certainty, there is no human machine or tool that could have done this. Stalks are bent all the same but not broken. No such tool. I cut corn for a living, so I know, and it wasn't here last night. To do all this in one night, you'd need 50 or 100 people, and I'm a light sleeper. There'd be footprints all over the place. I'm telling you, there's nothing. And, and this goop? This goop? No, there's no animal product that smells like this. The whole thing, I, it's damn spooky. 
And they showed the farmer walking the circle's perimeter, kneeling down in the smooth corn trench. The station's traffic helicopter was tasked to fly over the field for aerial footage. And soon, other witnesses appeared, testifying to bright lights in the sky that fateful night. And a dozen volunteer conspirators, lying or believing, enlisted in my father's project. I don't know what lesson I drew watching them back then, when I was 10, but I certainly recognize a pattern now. Um, the, uh, the awkward mistake that I made was in, um, this would have been in September of, uh, September, October of 09, so two years ago exactly, I contracted with Random House uh, to publish this play and to undergo whatever tests had to be taken on it to uh, authenticate it as being wholly or partially by William Shakespeare and being of the right age. And the paper was tested and the ink was tested and uh, professors poured over the text itself. Computers poured over the text in what's called computer stylometry. And I uh, believed in good faith when I signed that contract that I was going to be introducing an actual Shakespeare play. Um, I obviously no longer believe that, but certain things at that point had wheels were in motion that couldn't be stopped. I'll put it that way. Uh, and as I said just now about people coming out of the woodwork to agree with what they thought they saw, um, I mentioned that very specifically because I think we're looking at very much the same experience here in which you know people are, are glad to say it's real when I think there's been plenty of evidence to, to the contrary. Unfortunately, as I said, it was too late. Contracts were signed. Things were underway. Um, uh, I'm going to. Shakespeare and I have had a kind of difficult. I, I'll stop for a second. Are there any questions? I'll come back. Oh, we'll have other opportunities for it. But if people wanted to say anything at this point or ask anything, certainly not required, of course. Th there will be a test at the end. <laughs> All right. Uh, before I was a novelist, as uh, Cecil was mentioning, I did a lot of other things. I was in advertising for a while. I wrote ad copy. Uh, and this is a letter that I wrote my twin sister uh, on our shared, well, actually not exactly shared. She was born on the 22nd. I was born 38 minutes later on April 23rd, which turns out to be anyone else? Shakespeare's birthday, possibly. Um, in 1992, uh, quite sick of Shakespeare, I had gone on this trip to London for work uh, and wrote this letter back to my sister. Dana, we had a day off after we landed and the hotel wouldn't let us check in early, so I joined a side trip to wander in your woods, yours and dad's. I visited lovely Stratford-upon-Avon. I've seen your man's house now, a museum with a plastic ham on a replica dining table. Anyone been there? Recall that ham? Yes. Authentic. Every detail. I've walked in his magic forest, the sliver of it that remains between two expressways. I've watched actors in drag, prance, and spittle his words. I've gone looking for his ghost in the streets that remain, the furrowed fields that remain, the churchyard he walked, the tomb he fills. Last night... Your bard hogged the conversation with two Germans I met in a pub near our hotel back in London. Uh, Heidi and Gunther had come on holiday from Meisen to see the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford, and they were now taking two days in 20th century London before returning home. Heidi and Gunther were, quote, not engaging to marry, 
according to Gunter, standing at the bar, before we'd even had our first pint together. We do not see the reason for it. We are together, and that is all. One of those premature explanations, unprovoked self-descriptions that fling and gyrate awkwardly in the middle of conversation, implying recent tiffs and incomplete makeups. Heidi's answering silence set my suspicions up on their hind legs. By the time we'd had a few rounds, Gunther had been telling me for an hour how Shakespeare was the most brilliant man ever to write or even to think, more human even than Goethe. Whatever the fuck that's supposed to mean. <laughs> he didn't stop for an instant to ask what sort of work had brought me to London, but he just roared on and on about the plays they'd seen up at Stratford, the global humanness he had witnessed and understood even more deeply this time, how in every culture everyone loved him without fail, how grateful Gunther was to great Shakespeare for making us and opening our eyes. Heidi nodded now and then and watched me nod politely, but I could see it. When I allowed just the tiniest, most deniable flicker of mockery to sparkle on my face, to cast the tiniest shadow across Gunther's earnest, happy performance, Heidi smiled and drank, and Gunther thought she was smiling for him, and he put his arm around her shoulder and pulled her close so that her head cricked away from him, and she looked up at me and drew a swizzle stick between her lips and across the cradling tip of her tongue, draining a drop of Malibu and Coke from it as it passed, and Gunther seemed further and further away and his Shakespeare love was more and more laughable. Less than laughable, irrelevant to the planet. Inhuman, the opposite of universal. An annoying hobby. Stamps. <laughs> One drink led to another, and we walked out arm in arm in arm, Heidi in the middle, and in, into the London night until our mouths were sticky with salty mist and hours old liquor and German cigarettes. We stumbled along, and then there were bells. You know it is today! Gunther yelled as the clock showed it was past midnight. Today is probably his birthday. 428, did you know this? Happy birthday, Willie! He shouted, quite pleased with himself, and from dark corners and behind shuttered windows, voices called back, Happy birthday! Gunther supported himself with one hand against an apartment building. Well, with his other, he fished out his lederhosen schnitzel. <laughs> Not much to do about nothing, if I may. And urinated a shadow onto the wall and a black mirror onto the sidewalk. First a drizzle, then a tempest. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I delicately stepped out of view around the corner and was considering whether I had had enough of my krauts for the evening when Heidi joined me. And from the shadow, we heard the bobby arrive. Oi, you there! and heard Gunther stammer his excuses to the constable, though the sound of his flow continued on and on and embarrassingly on. <laughs> the cop said, you a German then? In a tone implying it would be best if Gunther claimed to be Swiss. <laughs> yes, sir, and I'm very sorry, Mr. Policeman, for the yearning, but you know it is the birthday of your William Shakespeare. <laughs> the cop put on a ludicrous German accent and hissed Gestapo-style, papers, please. What do you mean, my papers? Uh, yes, oh, okay, my fiancé has our passports. You need the passports? Dana, now he claimed a respectable fiancé. Heidi would have none of it. Her eyes were so beautifully wide and blue. She shrank farther into shadow, took my hand, and placed her index fingers, silken nicotine whorls, against my opening lips. Gunther had taken on quite a load back at the pub, and he was discharging still. He could neither accelerate nor stop, and it seemed that the policeman was going to wait him out and hold each past milliliter against him, each drop an affront against English law. Uh, this is acceptable behavior and hygiene in Germany, then, is it? 
he sneered, though he had likely urinated on his share of British buildings, and German ones too, probably following some football club to Munich looking for a brawl. When Gunther's untimely release came to its hesitant, dribbled conclusion, he called out, Heidi? Artur? Where are you? The cop said, Oi, that's making a noise and disturbance. Fritzy on top of the indecency. Come on then, off we go. Please, police, wait! Heidi! No indecision pinched Heidi's face as we heard Gunther arrested and walked away. She showed so little hesitation, I wondered if she hadn't sent for the policeman in the first place. Are you sure you don't want to... I began. No woman shall succeed in Salic land. She quoted Henry V in a whisper and took my hands. You liked her. No woman shall succeed in Salic land, which Salic is at this day called... Anyone? Anyone? Any Shakespearean scholars here? Anybody? Nobody? Nobody? Want to check your... Want to Google it? Nobody? <laughs> which Salic is at this day called Misen? This is the only line I like. He knows me in this line only. We heard, Heidi! Echo along the stones and streets as we walked in the opposite direction. He called you his fiance, I said, only to know if she felt any remorse at all about Gunther's approaching evening. You're f his fiance. Yes, but fiance is a French word, she said. There is no word for it in German. And that was the end of Gunther. Heidi was wonderfully distracting. She did not like Shakespeare at all. Carried a grudge about him, in fact. Obviously, we bonded over this. Is it okay to say I don't like him? She asked very quietly. Her long holiday of plays in Gunther's company had driven her to an endearing madness. Here is what I hate, she said, as she pinned me to a tree on the Thames embankment and sniffed at my neck like a werewolf thinking it over. Here's what I hate. Macbeth meets these witches. They say, you'll be king. Just sit still. Wait a little. And so immediately he kills everyone. <laughs> Human nature, I suggested, as her lips found the pulsing part of my neck. Maybe he's saying that once we have seen what we want, impatience. Stop excusing him because this is shysa. She kissed me angrily. Look. Oh, excuse me. Look, says the watcherman up on the castle roof. Look, old King Hamlet's ghost just walked by. Also, don't get excited about this, though, because let's talk about the Norwegian army for an hour first. <laughs> Some clumsy exposition, I murmured, feeling oddly defensive of Shakespeare on our shared birthday as I was reaping the benefits of another man's misguided love for the bard. Oh, nine. Nothing is clumsy, Heidi. He's perfect. If you don't like this, it is you who has the problem. She was raving a bit now at Gunther at her holiday at the playwright. Every play is like this. You know, every single one. Othello? Oh, Iago knows everything. He is a machine devil. General Othello is, lucky for Iago, gullible, needy, easy to make a fool, like every general, I'm sure. Complexity of character? Don't be a stupid man, too. You are not like Gunther in this, I hope. The merchant of Venice. You are the Jew, right? Well, a Jew, I said, yes. Okay, so all your Shylock has to do is tell that little bitch is, hey, it's Antonio's debt to pay me so he can cut his own flesh without me and give me my pound, and if he spills his own blood or cuts out too much, that's his problem. Now pay me, Christian bastards. Am I not right? I actually hadn't thought of that solution, or of Shylock particularly as mine. <clears throat> At any rate, she became, if I may speak frankly, more and more aroused with each new flawed plot, character inconsistency, technical error. Any fault she could find in Shakespeare was a slap in the face of her pedantic imprisoned lover, whose crimes, she claimed, held no interest for her when, once more, I tried to ask her about him, about her past, but she was done with her past. 
very admirable. Um, so you can see how we're heading towards the discovery of a, of a new Shakespeare play, I think. <laughs> Any questions at this point? Often people might ask, oh yes, I'm sorry, go ahead. Okay, I, I, we're very interested in the title, as on the title. Yes. Which makes clear that there are two versions of your title, and one is the tragedy of Arthur, and the other is the tragedy of a novel by Arthur Phillips. <laughs> and I think it would be interesting to hear... Look at that. What you <laughs> now, what is the tragedy of a novel by Arthur Phillips? Uh huh. Uh, you know, I hadn't read it like that before, actually. <laughs> I'm really, I hadn't. Uh, but yeah, it's a tragedy of a novel. That's for damn sure. I mean, did the critics panic? Uh, not that I've noticed, but they, got, they were confused. A lot, a lot of them were confused and treated the whole thing as if it were fiction. Um, so I think that threw a lot of people off, probably. Any other questions? Yes. While I was waiting, um, you start, I just started the chapter where Dana outs herself as an anti-Stratfordian, and you uh, referred to, she studied the loony ciphers. Did you choose the word loony because... I did. Okay. Uh, the, um, although it's pronounced loony, tragically. Uh, the guy who, there's a film coming out in a couple weeks called Anonymous, which, is, uh, which illustrates the idea that somehow the, all these plays were written not by William Shakespeare, but by somebody else. There have been over 70 candidates for who that other person is. This particular film proposes an Earl who died uh, 10 years before some of the plays were written. But, um, and that theory was first proposed by a man named J.T. Loney, spelled without comment, Looney, um, uh, back in the 1920s, I think. Uh, it's uh, made, a movie made by a guy named Roland Emmerich, who made other historical fictions. <laughs> Um, um, one about a larger, uh, above-average-sized reptile, I think, in Japan. Um, there was also one about in which Will Smith negotiated, I think, the diplomatic solution to a particular conflict with some invading <laughs> army from space. Um, also a movie about uh, a glitch, I think, in the calendar next year. But um, those movies were slightly more plausible than Anonymous. But um, uh, he's certainly one, I think, who does his best to get the facts straight. Um, so anyhow, yes, my sister, as I go into in this story, my twin sister at one point, as a sort of way of pissing my father off, uh, decided to, to believe or to claim to believe in these theories that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare's plays. Um, she got over it, but not before basically causing him an aneurysm. So any other questions? Um, well, I will read a, a small part of the play, and you can be your own judge about um, who may or may not have written it. Um, maybe before I get to that, I wonder if there's anything else I should cover of important details. Um, I should mention the reason, uh, some people might not have picked up on this, uh, the reason that I was asked at all to introduce this play, as not a Shakespearean scholar in the slightest, uh, is that it was, it was I standing in that safe deposit uh, vault at the Minneapolis Bank in July of 2009. It was I who opened that vault and found a play that had been there since at least 1986, according to bank records. Um, uh, and so we know it's at least as old as 1986, but 
I wouldn't put it much older than that. Um, the fact that it's passed a lot of tests about ink and paper and stylometry and textual authenticity is neither here nor there, I would say. Um, and obviously, a lot of people stand to make a lot of money uh, from it, of course, if it's a real Shakespeare play. But we're not going to uh, let money get in the way of this story, are we? Uh, any other questions before I read a small part of the, of the play? Is the physical of Porto uh, on display anyway? No, it's not. It, it's still, uh, it was, as it was found, it, it's in a, a Ziploc bag on a foam pad under a black, in kind of like a black instrument case inside a further small wooden crate. And on the side of the crate is spray painted the word bananas in stencil. Uh, <laughs> And that, and that box continues uh, to reside in my closet <laughs> for, for uh, actually for not uninteresting reasons. You have a fair, it's a fair question. Um, the remarkable thing about this is that the copyright of a document which is purports to be 400 years old obviously can't, is gone. It's in the public domain. However, if only one copy of something like that exists, and you are the owner of that one copy. You can't copyright the text, but you can copyright anything that is produced from the text. And so the dirty secret of this is that I am the person with the most money to make in this venture. And yet I am the one who's going to stand up and say it's a fraud. So something to think about as a psychological case study. Yes, sir. Is that what you mean? I wanted to ask you to say a little bit about the legal problem that yeah. we discussed at the beginning. Yes. And I wondered if that's at the heart of them, or could you say a bit more about that? Well, I, as I said, at a time in good faith, I contracted to write the introduction to the play and to arrange to see it through its testing and publication. Uh, that included a clause in my contract which allowed me to write whatever introduction I chose to write, as it was a, my family's participation in this that made it all possible. I had intended to write a short and... Uh, approving essay. In the time between I signed the contract and the time I handed in the introduction, my view on the matter changed. I did my best to halt publication, and yet here we find ourselves. Uh, and so my essay reveals my views on the matter, but that, of course, cuts into the potential profits of not only myself, but also the publisher and the people who are currently preparing the play for production and filming. So a lot of, a lot of interested parties. Tough situation. Old story. Guy finds Shakespeare play, decides it's fake, gets sued. Blah, 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 blah. Um, Are you actually getting sued? It's hard to say. No. Not really, kind of. No. Just a little bit sued. Yeah. Not like getting sued. A little bit. Not really. Sort of. Okay. Uh, hard to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, over at Humperdinck, that's right. Yeah. Uh, no. Yeah, he is. It's true. It's not true. Um, uh, so here's a, a small, I'll read a small part of this, and then if we have anything more to discuss, we can do that. Otherwise, we can all get on with our lives, um, which I would imagine is suits everyone, right? Yeah. Kind of. Sort of. Split decision. Okay. Uh, this is from Act 1, Scene 5. Oh, I should tell you about the play. I'm sorry. The play is uh, the, the the play is entirely taken from um, 
a source called Holland's Hedge Chronicles, which is a book that we know Shakespeare used for several of his plays. Uh, it's the King Arthur story, but it's not the King Arthur story maybe that you are familiar with or that I was familiar with. It is, there's no Excalibur, there's no Lancelot, there's no Merlin, there's no magic, there's no round table, there's no Camelot. It's, uh, it's a, a history play, like Shakespeare's other history plays. Um, it is about who gets to run the island of Great Britain. Uh, the English Welsh king, Arthur, who uh, became the English Welsh king after his father uh, was killed in battle, his father Uther, and who in fact conceived Arthur uh, through a rape. He raped the Earl of Cornwall's wife, um, and that is Arthur's mother. Will Arthur be allowed to rule all of Britain, or will the king from the north, the northern king, the Scottish Pictish king, Mordred, a distant cousin of Arthur's? And so the play is very much an, a play about um, the right to succession, which was a hot topic in the late 16th century and in many of Shakespeare's plays. In this scene, Act 1, Scene 5, uh, Arthur um, has just been crowned. He was a job he doesn't particularly want. He was kind of a playboy um, uh, in, uh, off in the countryside waiting to never particularly taking seriously the fact that he was going to become king. And he is suddenly king and he is suddenly uh, at war with not only the Picts, but the Saxons, the invading German army, the Saxons. And he is standing in London trying to figure out what sort of king he's going to be. So this is Act 1, Scene 5. And he's alone. Uh, speech by a Shakespearean character alone. Anyone? Anyone? There we go. Uh, enter Arthur. So on a sudden am I made a king. There is no boy who'd have it otherwise to step from forest games and don true crown. But London's gamesters mark it ten on one that Arthur balance still crown on head or head on neck ere summer's come and blown. Those numbers tickle me. I'll Gloucester send to play a thousand marks that I will fall. E'en now to Amorous picked and German high from north and east to visit me at court and finger my own hat on this my seat. There's something in this wooden chair calls out to men of vaulting ween but little wit. What, dare I hold myself above them? Nay, I know I have no right to wear this crown. I'll contradict no pope who calls me king, but in this privy council kings speak troth. No right have I, no higher claim than loath. A bastard I from bloody tyrant sire. Unkingly, too, am I from the angry mood in which I was conceived, some kindnesses neglected, mother forced in loveless bed. And from my part in this bed's play they tell, my monstrous getting surely cursed the land, which God will ceaseless venge with pox and drought. What action might I take to ease this doom? I stripe my back at butchered Cornwall's tomb. Still I, the usurper, am by father damned. Well, at any rate. Um, any, any last minute uh, complaints? Anyone would like to register? Yes. Um, uh, uh, so uh, you say that it's not, you know, that you feel that it is not really a the play. What's the point then in publishing it? Is there any merit to, like, actually publishing something well, originally the publication was based on the idea that it, w it would be, and everyone would agree that it would be, and uh, and I think people are, people in charge are still hoping there's a lot of money to be found, you know, am amongst the suckers. Um, but uh, let's just say hypothetically for a second 
that it wasn't written by Shakespeare, but was written, um, uh, you know, by me in a cafe in Brooklyn between <laughs> 2008 and 2010. Uh, just hypothetically. And then your question, I think, becomes much more interesting, which is, what, what, the, what the fuck? Um, which I think is then a, fair, a, fair, a much fairer question, really. Um, uh, I think it is an interesting question to say, if you, can, if, if you could read something in which you cannot find any vocabulary or grammatical or thematic reason why it isn't Shakespeare, but, and so either you kind of feel that it is, or you feel, for some reason, you just feel that it isn't. And you say, I just know that he wouldn't do that, or he didn't, or, or not he didn't, but he wouldn't, or that's not like him, or that's not how his plays make me feel. Or, on the other hand, you read it for really the first time in your life, and you say to yourself, this is the first time I've ever been able to read a Shakespeare play without ever having without already knowing everything there was to know about it or having seen it or heard about it or read about it in class. That presents a kind of interesting, I think, um, uh, experiment, a thought experiment to you as a reader or somebody who might see it put on. And you can say to yourself, well, what is it exactly that makes me feel the way I feel when I see or read unquestioned Shakespeare as opposed to this dubious Shakespeare? And if there isn't anything different about it that I can put my finger on, and I do agree that there might not be anything different that you can put your finger on. What's it feel like to read new Shakespeare? Even crap Shakespeare, possibly. And if, it, if I know, if I can just feel that it isn't Shakespeare, how do I know? Because I think that's a hard question to answer uh, when presented with something that might plausibly just be one he didn't get around to publishing. For, what is that idea, and why do people get so uptight about it that they even go to the trouble of making vaguely crappy movies about it? <laughs> so, maybe, maybe that answers the question. But of course, that all relies on a ridiculous hypothetical. So, <laughs> sir. Has uh, Dana read the published introduction at this point? Is there any... Uh, I'm, I'm hoping, obviously, if you've, if you've gotten to the end of it, you know that a great deal relies on her being able to get around to reading it. So, haven't heard yet. Yes. What sort of research did you do? Like this? Um, I uh, read the complete works of Shakespeare out loud uh, in the order that one of the possible orders he may have written them. Um, and then there was a lot more after that. I mean, it's, it's, an inter it's another interesting hypothetical question. What would, it, what would I have to know to write a Shakespeare play? Um, what did he know? Which also brings me very close back to this question of, well, he couldn't possibly have. It, it could only have been a nobleman. It could only have been uh, the queen herself. It could only have been the Earl of Rutland, the Earl of Derby, the Earl of Oxford. It could only have, you know, and the list goes on and on, Amelia Lanier and the other 70 people that it must have been because it couldn't possibly have been him. Um, and what I found uh, was it seems very clearly that it could have been him. Besides all the pre-existing evidence and all the reason that I already knew it was him, the act of trying to do it... Um, makes it very clear what it would have required 
and what you would have had to read and what you would have had to know and what you would have had to go find out from somebody else and what and where you wouldn't have been able to use your imagination and if you one of the other things I did is I went back and looked at the source material of the plays of his that I had read and that I had known and I asked what did he change why did he change it why didn't he keep this battle in the same order that it occurs in the source material he used well because it makes for a better story this way so it's somebody who you can occasionally get glimpses of I think as a writer somebody writing and somebody doing his own research. Um, and I found that process very illuminating and invigorating. Not to mention exhilarating. Yes? What's your least favorite film version of a Shakespeare play? Wow. Um, my least favorite? Um, that's hard. I can think of a lot that I really like. Um, I think the Hamlet that was on TV a couple of years ago with the guy from Doctor Who as Hamlet was pretty amazing. Actually, he was great. Patrick Stewart was uh, Claudius, and it was a great version. Um, I've, I don't know. I feel like I've seen... What's your least favorite? I feel like I've seen a lot of good Shakespearean movies. Yeah, a little, little dated looking. And Olivia's Henry V is a little... I mean, they, it's that whole old production values versus new production values, you know, Kenneth Branagh has certain advantages. <laughs> Just in fake blood, if nothing else. But also the, the, the sort of crafted amber kind of quality of yeah. the characters. Yeah. You know. and, the, and the declaiming gets to be a little much, I guess. Fair enough. Sir? What does the academic establishment think about the book? Have, have they commented on it at all? Uh, Stephen Greenblatt, who's Harvard's big Shakespeare guy, reviewed in the in the New York Times Book Review, um, and James Shapiro, who's Columbia's Shakespeare guy, who actually was a great help to me writing it, uh, wrote about it in the Daily Beast, and Stanley Wells, who runs the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, just did it in the New York Review of Books, and reception has generally been interested and happy and pleased, and yeah, they've been very nice about it. I think they just like it when people pay attention to them. <laughs> Yes. So, um, I actually like the introduction better than the, um, the tragedy. I've been reading the tragedy when he's a red time. And there were certain minutes. But, um, so I read the, the tragedy and I liked it a lot and I thought this book was written for me. I really liked it a lot. So then I picked up your prior book, The Songs You Were and um, this book was really written for me. I like it. And um, I thought, what are the odds that one writer can write one book? But I like that much. And then I realized there's the two guys, one that the movie of the book, the song, and then there's millions of other readers who have read the books. Millions? Well, whatever. <laughs> 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 they made the books um, bestsellers. And I was thinking, how is a writer... Or like how do you describe with words the feelings and the experiences of the characters in a way that the the reader connects with the characters? Because hmm. that's what I like best about the two books that I read of yours. I read Kronk too a while ago, and I didn't feel the same way about it as I did the latter two. But how how do you do that? Um <laughs> how, how uh well you know it's um I write, I write stuff that I like, and I don't really think about it beyond, is this something that I would like? And is this the book that I would want to read that, I, that 
someone else hasn't written yet that I would enjoy reading. And then it gets published, and then statistically some number of people who read it will feel, oh, that's a, that's a book I enjoy, and the characters feel real or feel important or connect with me, as you said. And then some other percentage of people don't feel that way. And then they get kind of mad and they write mean things. But, um, but I mean, it, but it's, it, it just means you and I, at least a little bit in those two books, have somewhat similar taste. I think that's the only thing it means. I think so. Because you didn't feel that way about Prague, and I did. So we don't have, we don't, so, and we don't, we don't have perfectly matched taste, but you're, you know, you're pretty good, so. Um, I, I, is there another, am I answering the question? Maybe I'm missing something. It seems. I'm very glad, and I'm glad that it worked. Um, it, it, it just, it often, as often as that, do, for somebody else, it, does, it doesn't happen. And then they say, well, why can't you write in such a way that I feel empathy towards the characters? And why can't you write in a way that makes me feel connected? And why, why don't you have enough empathy for the characters to write better so that next time I read one, it won't be such a drag? But that's, that's literally what they feel. As, you know, and it's, it's just, it's almost... Um, it's almost like a DNA thing. It's like you happen to be ready at that moment to feel that way about that book, and the other person doesn't. And I happen to always, because they're exactly matched to what I like. But I think it's very random, to be honest. Yes, sir. I was just wondering, if you wrote that into a screenplay, uh, what type of actors would you put in to play the parts? I'm just curious about it. Um, huh. My, my, gen my usual answer is anybody who is willing to play the parts is perfect. Um, I don't know, you know, I haven't thought, it's funny, I know that there are people who write and they think of somebody in their head, they have an image in their head. I, don't, I haven't had that experience and I don't, um, so I don't have anybody off the top of my head to name. You got anybody? Did you see anybody when I was reading it? I've heard. Uh, the guy who played Shakespeare in Shakespeare in Love, I think would be fine. <laughs> Joseph Fines, he can do it. <laughs> what, do your father and sister have an idea how to cast them? <laughs> uh, my father, as uh, obviously, uh, tragically dies in this book, so he doesn't have a strong feeling on the matter. Um, uh, and my twin sister would be whoever looked the most like me, I suppose, or like Joseph Fines. So. <laughs> My brother, who somehow didn't end up in the book, uh, threatened to sue me as to answer your question for not being included in the book. So <laughs> there is that hanging over me. All right, on that note, I think uh, I'm happy to sign books, um, this book or other books, or books by anybody for that matter. Um, if that's how you'd like to, how do you like to do those things, Cecil? Thank you. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.
www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.